Our scripture lesson is from the first epistle of St. Paul to the Corinthians, the third chapter, verses 16 and 17, and the sixth chapter, verses 19 and 20. Our subject, Incarnation and Indwelling. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now the sixth chapter, verses 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. We touched briefly last week on the fact that the church has at times claimed inerrancy and infallibility for itself. This doctrine is normally associated with the Catholic Church, but it is by no means confined to the Catholic Church. In some respects, perhaps, the most far-reaching expression of that belief has been in Greek and Russian Orthodox circles. It has also been very commonplace in Protestant circles, although very commonly in disguised form. Let us analyze the significance of these ideas and where they spring from so that we might understand their fallacy and what scriptures teach it. The idea of the inerrancy and infallibility of the church rests in the idea or doctrine of the church as the continuation of the incarnation. The rationale is that if the church is indeed the body of Christ, as Scripture very clearly teaches. Then it follows that the church is, in some sense, a continuation of the life of Christ and of his incarnation. That it is, in fact, the continuing history of the incarnation of Christ. This is the rationale. The doctrine has had extensive expression. It has become popular in some liberal circles on a limited basis in recent years. We find approaches to the idea very emphatically set forth in Paul Tillich and in Donald M. Bailey, two very popular 
water itself, even apart from baptism, has something mystical and sacramental about it. As an irreverent thought, we would have to say that if everything natural is meandered, then wine, per se, is meandered, and any wino who is drinking a bottle of wine is at any time partaking of a sacrament. Because everything in the natural order is meandering, according to these men. Now, obviously, this idea is very dangerous. When Bailey stopped short of declaring that the church was a continuation of the Incarnation, it did not mean that he was somewhat more conservative than those Protestant, Catholic, and Greek and Russian theologians who say that the church is a continuation of the Incarnation. On the contrary, he is far more deathly than they are, and that he makes the whole world other than the church continuation of the incarnation. He divinizes virtually all reality. Moreover, Bailey makes us the silly the sacrament to the incarnation rather than to the atonement. And he tells us that we are saved by God, and I quote, through faith and therefore partly through sacraments, which he uses to awaken and to strengthen our faith. Thus the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is indeed a means of faith and an instrument of salvation." Unquote. Now, we are not saved by partaking of the Lord's table. We partake of it because we are saved. If Bailey were right, then the more communion wine or the more communion bread that he could gorge down, the more sure we would be saved. That's the very crude logic of his position. But the sacraments celebrate our salvation. They are not the means of it. The idea of a sacramental universe has no ground in scripture. Nature like man is fallen, and nature like man is in need of redemption and restoration. Neither nature nor man are divine or are aspects or parts of God. Now this doctrine of an institution as a continuation of the Incarnation or the universe as sacramental is not new. It was common to paganism. This is why the Roman emperors and Pharaoh of Egypt and various rulers of antiquity regarded themselves as divine. The state was a divine order. It represented the incarnation of whatever deity was in nature, and the ruler was the culmination, the high point of that incarnation. And therefore, he 
was infallible. There could be no appeal against him in some society. The scripture nowhere speaks of the incarnation except with reference to Jesus Christ as a unique, as a single event only is it described in scripture. When scripture indeed does speak of the church, does not speak in terms of incarnation, but in terms of indwelling. In our scripture, in the first passage, the third chapter, verses 16 and 17, St. Paul declares, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. When St. Paul wrote these words, the imagery was very vivid to any Jewish or Gentile believer. Every Jew immediately thought of the glory of the second temple, and of the indwelling presence of God, the glory of God which had until the crucifixion inhabited the temple. Every pagan thought immediately of the tremendous temples that were commonplace to Corinth, to Athens, to Rome, and to every great city. Magnificent marble edifices, monuments of beauty. So that the seat of man and the church as temples of God was indeed very, very magnificent and glorious as a description of man. However, if any man defile, or the word can also be translated, destroy the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple ye are? Now, in this particular chapter, St. Paul is speaking primarily of the church. The beginning of the church, uh, the chapter, he deals with the controversy of the church. And he deals with his ministry and the ministry of Apollo through the church. But declares that the foundation is only Jesus Christ. And he declares that that is the only kind of foundation he or Apollos or any other minister can lay, or any man. And from there on, he goes on to the passage in question to generalize. And speak of the church primarily and of individuals secondarily as temples of God. Then in the sixth chapter, he deals very specifically with the individual. He is dealing with the sins of believers, particularly in the immediate passage proceeding to fornication and other sexual sins. 
And he concludes by saying, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. Now, St. Paul is emphatically declaring that the profanation of the church and of our body is a direct offense against God and brings on the vengeance of God against us. Thus, incarnation and indwelling are radically different concepts. Where you have an incarnation, the human and the divine are in perfect union without confusion. No judgment by the one nature over the other is possible. It is perfect union. It would be blasphemous to think of the divine nature in Christ criticizing the human nature. It's unthinkable. Christ is the unity, truly God and truly man, in perfect union without confusion. Now to speak of the universe or of the state or of the church as a continuation of the incarnation means that you verify faith those institutions or the universe beyond criticism. The logical conclusion of the idea of a sacramental universe is that whatever is, is right. And of course, this is a conclusion that men have come to more than once as a result of such thinking. But where you had the doctrine of indwelling and the fact of indwelling, there is no confusion of either deity or humanity, one with the other. There is no attempt to claim the attributes of the one or the other. The indweller can judge the indwelled. It cannot be so with respect to incarnation. The Christian and the church can be God's temple. They have been, they have also been judged. Very often the church has been forsaken by God. And people have been forsaken by God when his judgment is upon them. The indweller is not found whatever the indwelled just. He can judge it, he can condemn it, he can destroy his temple. The destruction of the temple twice in biblical history is a sign of the fact that God can turn on that which he indwells. It is justice required. Indwelling is not limited to the church or 
the individual, the believer. A godly family can have the indwelling presence of Christ. A godly state can be indwelled. We have sisters of that. The very requirement of the anointing of a king and of judges in the Old Testament era set forth the fact that it was God's realm. By his spirit he would indwell a godly ruler and protect that order. We have two civil Pentecosts in the Old Testament as evidence of the fact that God's indwelling can be with a state. It can be with a godly vocation, with a school, with any part of our life and of our institution. The concept of indwelling keeps God and man separate, as scripture requires, that brings them together in terms of faith and obedience by man and by the institutions of man. As a man grows in faith, and as he rebuilds all things in terms of God's word, he is more and more faithful to God and to God's spirit. More and more in close alliance with the indwelling spirit. The doctrine means that God is where he is obeyed. The house of God is his possession. The temple means house. To the extent that we allow God to possess our lives and to govern all our ways, To the extent that we obey him and allow nothing to separate us from him. To that extent we move in terms of God's calling and his dwelling. This doctrine means also that the church is the body of Christ only insofar as it is holy and obedient to the law. It has no guaranteed status. Our Lord said to the church of Laodicea, So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now this distinction between incarnation and indwelling is extremely important. The background of the church's thinking and the background of the world's thinking has been approaching this institution has been in terms of a pagan doctrine, not a biblical doctrine, of incarnation. It is not thought through its in terms of the doctrine of indwelling. This is why so many scholars who have attempted to write a study of the church in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament or the state in the Old Testament are baffled. Some of the books that have been written in this area are a mass of 
Because they are looking for highly institutionalized kind of things such as the modern world has. They look for institutions to bind society together. They look for permanency in the structure of these institutions so that they will be here come what may. in terms of man's will. And somehow the biblical pattern seems so ephemeral. As a matter of fact, Albert J. Knopf in his study, Man's Enemy the State, after examining some of these various studies of the state in the Old Testament, concluded there was no state. And therefore, the Old Testament was in favor of anarchy. Well, in that he was looking for the institutionalization that the modern world calls the state, he was right. But he missed the point entirely. The binding element in pagan society is a whole spectrum of human institutions would claim somehow, implicitly or explicitly, to be God walking on earth. The binding element in Scripture is God's law. And thus, when you examine Scripture, what appears primarily is God's law. This has priority. This is the binding element. Not the state or not the church. As institutions which men have made and said they're going to endure come what may. And we're going to ensure that nobody can fudge these institutions. The whole emphasis has been wrong. Because the doctrine of indwelling has been neglected. It has begun from the assumption that the church is the body of Christ and therefore it is, in some sense, a continuation of Christ in the world. Protestants have been more weasel worded about stating the same thing the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic Church hold. But in effect they affirm very much the same kind of thing. But there is a difference, to use the very imagery they use, between a head and a body. We are not told to press the imagery too far or given any permission to state that the oneness is there, come what may, and that it applies to the institution rather than to the congregation. The body of Christ is at all times the people of God. The 
very commonly the word that is used for church cannot be rendered the building ever or the institution but the congregation the people in whom God indwells over and over again men have been confronted with the horror of seeing the world over institutionalized and men have rebelled against this and sought to remedy it by swinging from this over institutionalization to a kind of anarchism and in our time we definitely have both very prominently with us implicit in the background of both is the doctrine of paganism, that of the sacramental universe. The only answer to these oppressive elements, whether in secular society or within the church, is to go back to scripture and to its doctrine of the church and of man and of God's presence in the world. Indwelling. And so we can say to our generation emphatically, build your institutions, try to make them endure. They are not the temples of God. unless they are holy. In verse 17 of the third chapter, the declaration for the temple of God is holy goes on with temple ye are. Now, as you will note in the King James version, which is the most faithful, temple is in italics, which indicates it is not in the text and is apparently understood. In this case, the translators misconstrued the reference, and therefore the meaning there is not accurately rendered. The reference which ye are is not the temple but the holy. Not which temple ye are or the which are ye that is holy. And it is because ye are holy that ye are the temple of God. Only on that condition. He has previously given them the warning that if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Now he assures them that in spite of very serious problems in their midst, he is still convinced they are the temple of God. For the temple of God is holy, the which are ye. 
by holiness are we God's temple? And only in terms of holiness, righteousness, knowledge, dominion, in terms of the law, word of God. For the word holy covers all those senses in its broadest meaning. Can we be God's temple? And can any institution or any church in any age be indwelled by God? What we need in our day, therefore, is a deinstitutionalization of life and a restructuring of life in terms of God's law and his indwelling spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of thy grace and mercy has made us thy temple. We thank thee, our God, for thy indwelling we thank thee for thy guiding, correcting hand. Make us ever faithful to thee. And grant that day by day we may ever labor to establish thy word, thy law, in every area of life. To bring all things under thy dominion. And to the plant the institutions of unbelief to the instrument of thy word and of thy power. Bless us to this end in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, on our lesson? Yes. When you said the word simple in our text was not in the original text, in this instance, as well as other places where it says that the Bible can legitimately say there are mistakes in the Bible? There are no mistakes in the original. In translation, sometimes we have problems. Now, I believe that King James translated the accurate text, the and is the most error-free of any of the translations we have. There are some places where we do have minor mistakes in the King James Version, but it helps us to detect them too, because first of all, you have a very literal translation, so that when a word is supplied, because it is understood or because here they felt the reference was the temple, it's put in italics. So you know when there's a word in italics that it is supplied. Sometimes where it's a noun, a pronoun, or part of a verb, it is a part of the uh, another word and not a separate word in the original. Now, I don't think there's any serious problem involved in this little uh, problem here with regard to temple. You still get the point. 
both as a society and as individuals. Our reference is to Psalm 95. Verse 11, and in that psalm he says, uh, the people harden not your heart as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said, it is a people that do earn their hearts, and they not know not my ways, unto whom I swear my wrath. That they should not enter into my rest. So, in the third verse, it was a reminder to the church of what he had previously done with people who refused to obey God. And now, it's a reminder to the church that they are destined to enter in unless they too, by unbelief and disobedience, prove to be as those who fell by the wayside. One was set aside, you see, and another has the plan of them. Israel was set aside, the church is the plan of them, and this is a reminder of that supplanting as well as a warning that we as individuals and as congregations can be the final. You see, just as Israel came to believe there was something natural that guaranteed them salvation, they were of Abraham, and they had to be confounded for that. So the church cannot assume because it is the church or Christians because, well, we call upon the name of the Lord. This means we can go our way and forget about God and be guaranteed that we are going to be uh, a part of his redemption. Are there any other questions? Yes. Yes, hyssop uh, was used for cleansing, so that uh, when he says, purge me with hyssop, he's saying, uh, send me to the cleaner's law. That, that's very literally it. You do the cleaning job on me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Any other questions? Well, let's bow our heads then for the benediction. And now go in peace. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.